Why don't we remember Peter as forsaking Peter or denying Peter? Or James and John as sleeping James and John? Or Paul as persecuting Paul, blaspheming Paul, insolent opponent Paul? The reason is because with most of the servants of God throughout all of history, we recognize that they're not really defined by their weakest moments, but that, but that those moments are set within a context of something greater. We recognize that, that they serve the Lord despite those. And, and we seem to recognize that for just about everybody except Thomas. Poor Thomas has gone through history now as doubting Thomas. And yet, there is so much more to Thomas than just this moment in John chapter 20 where that's what he did. He doubted. And tonight, what we're going to do is take a look at Thomas at his best, at leading Thomas. But this morning, we are going to take a few moments to consider some lessons that we learned from this, this one incident in Thomas's life, a, a, a weak time. We might even say that it was Thomas at his worst. And we're wanting to talk about what we see here in John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. In John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It certainly was Thomas at his worst. And yet even in this, what he probably considered for the rest of his life, a terrible situation, we can learn some things. And I'd like to share some of those lessons, some things that I get out of it with you. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. So thankful that we have the example of the apostles and other disciples and saints who've gone before us that we can learn from, that we can emulate what they did well so that we can be more like you, so that we can turn away from what they did poorly so that we can be more like you. Father, we're thankful for Thomas and the example that he's established for us. We're thankful that we can learn to walk by faith through him. Father, we pray that you help us to learn from these saints. Help us to learn to glorify you. Help us to learn to be like you. Help us to learn to serve you, whether we're here at this building or whether we're on our jobs or whether we're at home, at school. Help us to respond to the resurrection of your Son, not just with words, but with actions throughout our entire lives. Father, we are so thankful that you sent your Son and He is our Lord and our God. And it's through Him that we pray. Amen. Some lessons that we can learn from doubting Thomas. 
The very first thing I think we recognize is that at our worst, we are not worse than anyone else. I don't know if this was Thomas at his entire worst throughout his entire life, but as far as the incidents that we see of Thomas in the Gospels, and and there's actually three of them. We're only going to highlight two today. But there there are three times where we actually encounter Thomas, where, where we see Thomas speaking and him stepping up and being the one that the Scripture's talking about. Out of those three, this is definitely the worst one. But when I look at Thomas at his worst in this story, one of the things I can't help but notice is that he's not worse than anyone else. I don't know why it is that, that we pulled Thomas out of the twelve and called him Doubting Thomas. When in actuality, as we look at the Scriptures, we need to realize that, well, no, it was Doubting Peter, and it was Doubting Andrew, and it was Doubting James, and it was Doubting John. The fact is, all of them doubted. None of them believed. If we look back in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 16, we learn that two weeks before this time that Thomas displayed his doubts, that there were some women who had traveled to the tomb of Jesus, and some had even seen Jesus raised from the dead. They came back to the apostles, and they told them, this is what's happened. We've seen the Lord. Here's what you're supposed to do. And according to Mark chapter 16 and verse 11, it says, when the the apostles heard he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. In fact, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 11, when it talks about it there, It says they thought the women were speaking idle tales. Your translation may say they thought the women were speaking nonsense. They refused to believe it. Here in Mark chapter 16 and verse 12, it says, After these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. None of the apostles believed when they first heard these stories. In verse 14, in fact, when Jesus finally appeared to the eleven. He appeared, it says, verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. You see, the other apostles didn't believe. They had to see Jesus. In fact, if we look at John chapter 20 and verse 20 again, notice what it was that convinced the other apostles. In John chapter 20 and verse 20, when he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The very same thing that convinced Thomas was what had convinced the other apostles. And I think what we learned from this is that when Thomas says, unless I see his hands and unless I see his side, he didn't just come up with that on his own. The other apostles had said, look, we saw his hands. We saw his side. And Thomas is saying, well, until I'm the one who does that, I'm not going to believe. And that's exactly how all the other apostles were, until they saw the nail-scarred hands, until they saw the side. And I'll be honest with you, I don't completely understand exactly what it was they saw, whether it was just scars or, or whether there was some type of remaining, uh, some type of, somehow the wounds were remaining. I just don't know. But something there demonstrated this isn't a charlatan, this isn't a fake, this is the Jesus we know, this is the Jesus who was on the cross, this is the Jesus who was killed, and now he's raised. But we didn't believe it until we actually saw it. The point being that Thomas, even at his worst, was not worse than any of the others. And I think we can learn from that. Even at our worst, we're not worse than others. Look around you. Everyone here is a sinner. Now, they may not have committed your sins. 
And somehow in our world, we've developed this hierarchy of sins and, and we feel justified because, well, we haven't done that. Dear God, I thank You that I'm not like them. But the reality is we're, we're all in the same boat. And how easy it is for us because we are intimately aware of our own sins that instead of thinking we're better because we haven't done that, so often we think we're worse because we have done this. And how easy it is for us to come into the assembly such as this as we're wearing our smiling faces all dressed in our Sunday best and convincing the children that if they step out of line and embarrass us that we'll kill them. How easy it is to look around at folks in this scenario and feel like we're the outcast. We're the one who doesn't fit. We're the one who is the worst. The chiefest of sinners who doesn't even deserve what God has offered like everybody else does. But the fact is, even at our worst, we're not worse than anyone else. Romans 3.23, what does it say? It doesn't say, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, John, and I believe here he's talking about the apostles. He's not just talking about Christians. He's talking about the apostles who saw Jesus, who bore witness to Jesus. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John is saying the apostles were even sinners. Even at our worst, we're not worse than anyone else. We're all in that same boat. Everyone here is a sinner in need of God's grace. Some of us have received that grace. Some perhaps not. Do you remember what it says in Romans chapter 5? Even if you cannot wrap your head around the fact that you're not worse than anyone here, at least wrap your head around this, that you're not so bad that Jesus didn't die for you. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose His love for us in that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, that's written after Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 says, Even while we were sinners, even while we had fallen short of that glory of God, Jesus still died for us. You may still look around and say that everybody here is better than you, and if I can't get that out of your head, at least recognize that even at your worst, you're not so bad that Jesus didn't die for you. He died for you. Look at 1 John again. This time, look at chapter 2, and we want to read verses 1 and 2. John said, after he had pointed out that if we say we have no sin, we're lying. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Please don't think that anything I'm saying here is permission to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. It doesn't matter how bad their sins were. Son of Sam, Charles Manson, BTK. Jesus died for them, if they'll just repent. And if He could die for the whole world with people like that in it, brethren, I think He could die for us. He did die for us. Even at your worst. You're not worse than everybody else. 
You're the same. You're a sinner in need of God's grace. And even at your worst, Jesus still died for you. The second thing I learned from this is that everyone has times of weakness. The way the Bible is written, it sometimes seems that the rest of the apostles kind of fall into the shadow of Peter and Paul. And yet we need to understand that Jesus chose these men to be the leaders of His church. And that's exactly what they did. They led. They were leaders. They were great men. On the day of Pentecost, even though Peter is highlighted, he wasn't alone. It says Peter taking his stand with the eleven. Peter wasn't alone. He was there with all of them. Thomas was right there on the day of Pentecost proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Thomas was there when it says in Acts 8 that all the church was scattered, but the apostles remained. Thomas was right there. Thomas was a great servant of God. And yet he had a time of weakness. He had a time of doubt. Everyone has times of weakness, not just me. Not just you. Isn't that, but that's what we think, right? You know, we may realize what we said a moment ago about even at my worst, I'm not worse than everybody else, but we still come in here and everybody just looks like they're strong. They know all the right questions, answers to all the Bible questions. They never wake up and have any doubts. Every morning they get out of bed smiling and ready to attack Satan and ready to attack false doctrine and they're just ready to get into the battle and fight all day long and they get done at the end of the day and everything's good and they don't have anything to regret. They're not at all like me because sometimes I have doubts and sometimes I have weakness and sometimes I fall and there's some days I wake up and I just go, I don't even want to be in the fight today. I'd rather just lay in bed all day. There's some days I feel like defecting. But I know that nobody else is ever like that, right? Is that how you felt? Everyone has times of weakness. You know what amazes me? I've probably shared this with you before, but, but it, what amazes me is that, that I'll have somebody to call me up and say, I need to talk to you. And they'll come into my office and they'll say, you know, my, my life is just a wreck. It's just so miserable. And sometimes I feel like it's just a big hypocrite walking in here. You know, in fact, just the other day, I, I walked into the building and I saw brother or sister so-and-so. And I just knew, I could just tell that they were looking at me and they knew what a big hypocrite I was. And, and I wish I could be strong like them. And you know what's really amazing? Is that last week, the brother or sister they were just talking about was in my office saying the same thing about them. I don't know how many times that's happened. We have the idea that we're the weak ones. Everybody else just has it perfect. They're all just marching through, uh, just headed straight for the promised land because they're so good and they never have weakness. That's just not the case. I mean, a Thomas, an apostle, a great servant of God, had a time of weakness and yet still did great things for God. Why can't we recognize that even though we've had times of weakness, we can still do great things for God also? We're not defined by our moments of weakness. And we're not hypocrites just because we've had moments of weakness. And we need to recognize that everybody else has had them too. We're all in that same boat. I frankly think this is why we need to harp on James chapter 5 and verse 16. James chapter 5 and verse 16 where it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's read that again. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, this statement is not here as a rule that says, okay, if anybody wants to be healed, here's the checklist, confess to one another. This statement is here because this is what it takes to get healed. 
being able to share with folks, here's what I'm struggling with, instead of isolating in my own little world and thinking I'm the only one, it takes breaking out and sharing with others because that's when we help each other. Once we begin to recognize that I'm not the only one, then we can start sharing. And of course the thing is, we all preach James 5.16, but we all end it, it's almost as if it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, but you first. Some of us are just going to have to start doing this. And I know it makes us vulnerable. And I know it's risky. But I can tell you, from experience, it works. It works. We've got to get out of this fantasy world that we are the only person in this building that struggles and start talking with one another and sharing with one another and helping each other. Everyone has times of weakness. The third thing I recognize from the story is that we've got to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. When Thomas finally saw Jesus and he declared his faith in him, my Lord and my God, in John chapter 20 and verse 29, Jesus rebuked him. He says, have you believed because you've now seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it is a rebuke. He demonstrated to Thomas that you should have believed without seeing at the testimony of the witnesses. And yet, it's more than a rebuke of Thomas. It's actually a defining statement about how we're supposed to live. Blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. Blessed are those who believe on the testimony of the witnesses. After the apostles, after those 500, there wasn't anybody else that saw Jesus except Paul, and he described himself as one born out of due season or one untimely born. He said, I'm an exception. We don't see Jesus. We see the testimony of those who have seen Jesus. And yet, of course, today we have so many people that that are acting like, well, we're supposed to see Him. And how many people talk about the vision that they've had of them and the signs that they have received? I remember one time when we were on the radio in Texas, the guy who was the manager of the station had been a very religious person. Uh, it, it amazed me that he was the manager of the station because, frankly, he was very irreligious. He, for some reason, just liked the Southern Gospel music that the, the radio station played the rest of the time when we weren't on the air. And that, I'm just amazed me. I never understood it. And we had some talks, and he said, look, if God wants me to believe in him, he's going to have to show me a sign. I'm going to have to see something. The second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 builds off of what Jesus says here to Thomas when he points out that we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, we're not walking by a blind faith. We're not looking at the evidence and discounting it. We've recognized the evidence. We've seen the testimony. We've read the eyewitness accounts and we believed that. But we didn't see it ourselves. That's faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. But here's, I want to take this a step further because here's the point. It's it's not just I believe in Jesus even though I haven't seen Him. It's that I believe Jesus even if I can't actually see where Jesus is leading. Jesus gives us direction in His Word. And sometimes we look at what He says and we don't understand how that can work. Surely that's not the way it is, at least not for me. Now, if Jesus had known my situation, He would have recognized that I'm an exception, that everybody else may need to do it that way, but in my particular situation, that's just not the way it really works. 
And we just may not be able to understand how Jesus' way is actually going to work. We may think that it's going to lead to a different end. But if Jesus says this is the way you need to do it because this is what's going to lead to life, then we need to just follow Him. The best way for me to illustrate this is just to, to look at some examples. What about like in Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 23, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with them to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. If you realize that you've done something and somebody's upset at you and you've done something wrong to them and so now they have ought against you, you know what my natural tendency is? Well, if they had a real problem, they could come talk to me. I don't want to rock the boat. I mean, right now we've got a little bit of, of tenuous peace going on here and if I go bring it up to them, all that's going to do is rock the boat and probably make them mad and I don't know how they'll respond. But you know, my, not, my job is not to make them respond, right? My job is, when I know they have something against me, go to them. Make the amends. Reconcile. That's my job. I just have to tell you that most of the time I look at that, as this and I just think, maybe Jesus got this one wrong. What do you think, Jimmy? Possible? Gordon, you think he got this one wrong? Yeah, oh, yeah, I probably got this one wrong. I'll do something else. When I'm doing that, I'm walking by sight. Because here's what I see. I see it working this particular way, and that just can't be right. But when I'm going to walk by faith, I'm going to trust Jesus. That Jesus says this is the way it is, this is the way it'll work, do it this way. And I'm just going to do it. I think later on in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't like any of that. And so many times I get in situations and I think that I'm the exception. And so many times I'm looking at those verses and I'm trying to figure out exact lines and boxes and squares and say, well, this is where it is and I'll follow it this far, but beyond that, I know Jesus didn't mean that. Why don't I just do what He said? Just trust Him. Have faith that Jesus really knows. He knows the way. I may not be able to see the way. And sometimes, you know, the Scripture says, that God's Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. But it doesn't always show everything from right where we are all the way to the goal. We've got heaven lit up the end, and we've got a couple of steps lit up in front of us, and we can't necessarily see everything in between. But if we just keep following in that lighted path, it'll keep moving ahead. It's really, it's kind of like driving. Kind of like driving. I left Chattanooga yesterday. I don't know that Bonnaroo is going on this week. And so we had to, uh, we didn't want to be on 24 going past Manchester. So we had to get on Highway 41 that goes through Tullahoma and Shelbyville. And, and what's usually a two to two and a half hour trip, of course, took us three and a half to four hours. We're on these curvy, windy roads. And you know, it was very interesting. The light from my car did not shine all the way to 95 Oak Valley Drive. It only shined, what, 30, 40 feet in front of the car. Beyond that, I couldn't see anything. 
but I was trusting my map that it was going to get me there. All i got to do is stay in the light along this road. And that's really the way it is. Walking by faith and not by sight. I couldn't see the road that goes all the way to my house. But I'm following the light. We may not be able to see how it's going to get us all the way to heaven. Just stay in the light. Even if it's only showing a few steps ahead, just walk in that light. Trust Jesus. His way works. Even when you can't see how it will. We need to walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus doesn't have to prove to us that it's going to work out right before we obey Him. We just need to obey Him. And the final thing that I learned from Thomas at his worst is that we all respond somehow to Jesus' resurrection. We all respond somehow. You know, there was almost kind of this idea in Thomas's statement that I'm not going to make a decision on this until I put my hands in his side, until I see the nail-scarred hands. But the reality was, even before that time, he had made a decision about Jesus' resurrection. He said, I will not believe. And there are a whole lot of folks today that it almost seems like they're trying to say, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to withhold judgment on that right now. We call them agnostic. I just don't know, so, so I'm just not going to say one way or the other. No, we are saying. Because we're either accepting and saying, my Lord and my God, as Thomas did finally, or we're saying, I will not believe. Those are the only two choices. We may think we're withholding judgment. We may think we're waiting, but we're doing one or the other. We're either saying, my Lord and my God, or we're saying, I will not believe. And every moment that we're withholding judgment, every moment that we're saying, I'm going to make that decision later, every moment that we're pushing it off and holding on, what we're really saying is, I will not believe. Because if we really believe, we'd do something about it, wouldn't we? If we really believe and saw Jesus as our Lord and our God, we wouldn't sit back saying, I'll come to Him later. We'd come to Him right now. Because that statement of Thomas there in John chapter 20 and verse 28, where Thomas answered Him and said, My Lord and my God, it's more about Thomas than it is about Jesus. Yes, it points out that Jesus is Lord and God. He is the sovereign ruler. But Thomas didn't just say Lord and God. He said, did you, did you catch that word? Two letters. My Lord and my God. Having seen Jesus, he understood that Jesus was not only divine, but because he was divine, had rule over Thomas. And we need to say along with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And that means ever so much more than just saying, I recognize you as Lord and God. Luke 6.46 says, why do you call me Lord, how's it end? And not do what I say. We can't call Jesus Lord if we're not doing what he says. My Lord and my God. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And on the text goes, making that same point. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's not just to say, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord and God. We need to be saying, my Lord and my God. And we don't just say that by saying it. We say that by doing it. By submitting. By walking in His life. By doing what He says. By getting into His Word. And letting it light our path and following where it guides. You know, that demonstrates how my illustration a few moments ago about the car, where it falls short. You know, we need to understand that about illustrations, is that illustrations only go so far. Because the fact is, in my car, which way did the light shine? The light shone whichever way I directed the car, right? The light wasn't moving to show me the way, but that's the way it works with God's Word. The light doesn't move with whichever way I want to point it. The light goes in one direction. It goes God's way. If I turn, I'm stepping outside the light. I need to stay in Jesus' light because He is my Lord and my God. And if my faith does not cause me to act, then I'm really just an atheist. Because everybody responds somehow to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's either my Lord and my God or it's I will not believe. No middle ground one or the other. How are you responding?